0: The case is submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 946187, Stephen Kurt Woody versus the United States. Mr. you may proceed.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Double Jeopardy Clause protects against the government seeking a second punishment for the same offense in a second prosecution. The issue in this case is whether the government's attempt to punish Mr. Witte for cocaine offenses, previously included in relevant conduct, violates that protection. The facts of this case illustrate exactly what the double jeopardy clause was designed to protect against. They also illustrate how these federal sentencing guidelines can be defeated and eliminated. Mr. Whitty was sentenced to 12 years in federal prison after buying 375 pounds of marijuana from federal agents. That sentence was based upon two things. It was based upon a guideline range of 292 to 365 months, which included all prior marijuana offenses and all prior cocaine offenses negotiated or committed by Mr. Whitty. It was further based upon Mr. Whitty's cooperation in a government request to reduce his sentence. The government has now indicted Mr. Whitty for the same cocaine offenses and seeks to punish him again. The express language of the sentencing guidelines shows that Mr. Whitty was previously punished and that he will be punished again. The May pet- I
2: just ask you a, a preliminary question about that? The petitioner here is saying uh, he would receive a multiple punishment for the cocaine offense if this second prosecution proceeds and he's sentenced. Why is that claim ripe now? I take it he has not received a second sentence.
1: That is correct. He has not yet been sentenced on the second prosecution. He
2: has been convicted in the second
1: he has not been convicted. That is correct.
2: And why, then, is that claim right?
1: The reason the claim is right is because under the Federal Drug Guidelines and the other language of the guidelines, the all offenses were merged for purposes of punishment in the first prosecution, and Mr. Woody has received all punishment that he can receive. The government- is barred from the end obtaining the end of the second prosecution, that is, any further punishment. Since there can be no punishment, there can be no criminal judgment. Thus, proceeding to the end and putting Mr. Woody through that process. Well, I'm
2: not sure that gives you uh, a claim at this juncture. I, I was troubled by it, and I, I wondered how you would deal with it. I also am troubled by how you would distinguish That case of Williams versus Oklahoma, where we held that the use of evidence of an uncharged crime at sentencing for the crime for which the prosecution succeeded uh, doesn't constitute punishment for the uncharged conduct. And it seemed to me quite close.
1: It is uh, not close at all, Your Honor, and here's why. In Williams versus Oklahoma, This Court sought in vain for a cross-reference between the murder statute and the kidnapping statute, finding no cross-reference, that is, no merger of the two crimes for purposes of prosecution, no merger of the two crimes for purposes of punishment, It found no violation of the double jeopardy clause and said, well, this is just a mere enhancement. In this case... The Federal Drug Guideline, 2d 1.1, and the policy decisions made by the Commission affect a merger for purposes of punishment, and that is exactly where the violation of the double uh, jeopardy clause is.
0: Did the term, did the opinion in Williams against Oklahoma use the term merger? I read it recently, and I don't recall using that term.
1: It does not use that term but it does look specifically for a cross-reference between the two statutes. I infer from the court seeking a cross-reference between the two statutes that it was looking for some sort of merger that would prohibit either the second prosecution or the second punishment, or it would not have sought some cross-reference between the two statutes.
0: What do you do with a case like Williams against New York, another Williams case, which says that courts have traditionally taken into consideration all sorts of Conduct in deciding what sentence shall be imposed,
1: courts have traditionally done that, and the only thing courts have had to look at prior to the sentencing guidelines were, was what was in the statute. Here we have a new set of sentencing guidelines that specifically prescribe punishment that specifically merge and, and well, it's
0: what, what do you mean by the term merge
1: well. Let's forget the term merge. I think that's a good idea. Let's look at 2D 1.1. 2D 1.1 and uh, the grouping provisions say group the offenses, drug offenses, according to their weight. The, uh, The guidelines also say drug offenses present a fungible harm and therefore are to be grouped. So what happens is the drug offenses, we arrive at a guideline by grouping them, by getting a total weight of the drugs. Now, if the government brings four charges, let's say, the drug guidelines group them and come up with one guideline range. If the government brings one charge, the drug guidelines still group the offenses and come up with the same guideline range. What what is happening in, in this case that is, if Mr. Woody pleads guilty to all charges at one charge, the guideline range is still the same. What's happening in this case is the government is bringing one charge. The, the guidelines, the mechanism still works the same way. Mr. Woody has the same guideline range. Then the government says, aha. They, all the offenses have been grouped. Mr. Whitty's gotten all the punishment he could get under the guidelines. Now, let us lop off one of the merged offenses that was punished, go I back — I thought you weren't going to use the term merged. Let us lop off one of the group defenses that was punished, let us go back to the Federal Criminal Code, Let us charge another one of the offenses that was grouped, and let us run Mr. Whitty through the sentencing guidelines again, where all offenses will be grouped, and he will receive a second punishment on the group offenses.
0: he, He was not convicted the first time of the same thing that he will be convicted of if a jury comes in against him the second time. Is that right?
1: That is correct. But the guidelines, the Commission, expressly made the decision to minimize the significance of the charging system.
0: So are you you saying, basically, that the guidelines prevent his being sentenced a second time or or that because of what the guidelines do, the double jeopardy clause prevents it?
1: Because of what the guidelines do, And the way they group offenses for punishment, the double jeopardy clause prohibits Mr. Witte being punished again in the same exact way.
3: And in punishment, what is his exposure? You've explained that if if there's one charge or two charges in the first trial, it's going to end up with the same uh, range. What is the additional exposure in terms of length of incarceration? as a consequence of the second prosecution?
1: In the first prosecution, the guideline range was 292 to 365 months, based on the grouping of all offenses. Uh, because of the government's motion for a departure downward, the sentence was 144 months. In the second prosecution, the relevant conduct and guideline range will again be 292 to 365 months. So Mr. Whitty is looking uh, for the same group defenses and an additional exposure at a minimum of 118 months, and for the same group defenses, an additional exposure of 191 months, which I believe is approximately an additional 15 but years. But if, if
3: the sentences are concurrent?
1: If the sentences are concurrent, he still he is looking at an additional, um, because the government made the motion for the downward departure, and-,
3: and Let's po- forget the downward departure. Leave it out of it. Tell me the difference in the- time served among these three. One, we have an indictment for both crimes. Two, we have an indictment only for one, and the other crime is considered relevant conduct. Three, we have an indictment for one, the other considered relevant conduct, but a second prosecution for the second crime. Are you telling me that the total numbers will differ in that third the, the total uh, incarceration period would, will differ. That's what I don't understand. I,
1: I believe uh, what the government says and what the Court of Appeals for the First, Fifth Circuit says should happen in the second prosecution is that let's assume Mr. Whitty had gotten 292 months, the minimum on the guideline range. The, the government and the Fifth Circuit are saying, okay, he's been in jail 30 months when this second prosecution sentence is handed down. If he gets... 365 months, take off 30 months, and then run the 365 months concurrent with the 262 left. So his exposure would be an additional 15 years.
4: Do, do the guidelines require that the sentences be concurrent?
1: The uh, Section 5G1.3B uh, uh, says that the sentences should be concurrent, but that doesn't mean that the second sentence will not add a significant amount to the In other words, they're not going to be strictly concurrent with the exact same amount of time.
4: I I understand that, but uh, there will be substantial concurrency, and and the district court has no uh, authority to alter that result and impose a consecutive sentence?
1: As the Fifth Circuit read it, and as I read it, I do not believe the District Court is going to have any authority to allow Mr. Witte to walk out of prison um, at the same time he would have after the first- Why, Why not?
5: I mean, the way it's supposed to work, isn't it? Look, there are two separate things. One is the double jeopardy clause. I take it from the year two, well before the guidelines. A judge might decide, hey, I'm going to give you 15 years because I've looked at your record and there are about three robberies here you've never been punished for. But uh, this is a very bad guy. And then, indeed, later on, a year later, if the government decides to indict him for one of those three robberies, I've never seen a case that says they couldn't do it. But the guidelines, which is a different matter, are supposed to not punish you twice for the same offense. And they can't think of every possible unusual situation. So why wouldn't you go in here and say, Judge, look, I'd like to tell you something. In this first case, they took all this conduct into account. Now, I know that the guidelines haven't written words for every situation. But what you ought to do is depart downward in this unusual situation in order to take this fact into account, which is very unusual. And you'll make all your arguments. And if the judge concludes that indeed this is really a jip that the government's indicting him twice, maybe he'll listen to you. And if the judge concludes that maybe your client did something that they, government, didn't reasonably expect them to do, maybe they won't listen. But, I mean, isn't this just the situation that you should put your argument to a judge as a matter of discretion in departure and not an argument to the court as a matter of double jeopardy law?
1: No, it's not. And here's why. We already know what the Fifth Circuit answer is going to be. The Fifth Circuit answer is going to be, Mr. Whitty, go serve an additional... No, no,
5: it's not the Fifth
1: Circuit. It will be up to the sentencing judge in the future in a trial we've never even had yet. But we know that the sentencing judge is going to follow the guidelines. We know that the the guidelines
5: permit departure, is my point. And isn't this exactly the kind of situation that if, in fact, your client is being badly treated in the way you suggest, the judge ought to listen to your argument and follow it, but otherwise not?
1: I don't see... I, I... Understand that you're talking about 5K 2.0, where uh, it wasn't considered by the sentencing by the sentencing commission, but I don't see how a judge could reduce the sentence and make it run strictly concurrently. The f- yeah. what, 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 what? Why not? You read the sentence. The, ar- yes, the argument on the other side would be, if the government prevails in this case, the argument on the other side is, well, judge clearly. The Commission considered this under 5G one point three B. And clearly this is the way it's supposed to work. How can if 5G one point three B does apply, and Mr. Whitty, as the Fifth Circuit said, is supposed to get an additional 118 months, how can you walk in front of a district judge and say, Judge, the sentencing commission hasn't considered this, even though the Supreme Court and the Fifth Circuit say 5G 1.3B applies, please reduce the sentence. They'll say back to me. Wait a minute, 5G 1.3B expressly applies, even though we disagree with that, but that will be it, the it, this,
5: this is the argument you would make, I guess, in the future. Look, the theory of the thing is if the thing has been taken into account the first time, the judge isn't supposed to do it the second time. He's already been punished. You have a very unusual situation, I take it, because the first time involved, involved a special credit for cooperation. So that's unusual, and you will go to the court and explain all the reasons why the judge should try to make the thing match as a departure. And the government, I take it, would put contrary reasons as if that's what they think. But isn't yours quite an unusual circumstance? And for that reason, departure might be called for, or might not be. I didn't see anything in any of the opinions that addressed that problem.
1: It it is an unusual circumstance. I think if Mr. Woody does not prevail here, I think that the government will have an argument that 5G 1.3B does expressly take that into account, and therefore I will be foreclosed. But in addition, if Mr. Whitty has received all the punishment he should have received under the sentencing guidelines for the group defenses, why does the government have the right to put him through the jeopardy of facing more punishment that he should not get under the sentencing guidelines. Why should Mr. Whitty be waiting in Harris County Jail to see if the judge is going to agree with us or not. Why should he go through that anxiety when the sentencing guidelines have worked the way they should have worked in accordance with the policy of of Congress to bring about uniformity in sentencing, to bring about proportionality in sentencing, in accordance with the policy and the sentencing guidelines to reduce the significance of the charging decision, to avoid double counting for drug crimes, to treat them as fungible harms? When Mr. Whitty goes up and faces his maker, to receive from 262 to 365 months on all those offenses, why should he again go to meet his maker for the very same offenses? And Mr. Whitty's argument does not apply across the board. The guidelines are not monolithic. The guidelines make policy decisions about what is a fungible harm and what isn't a fungible harm. I think we would have a different situation if Mr. Whitty had committed five bank robbers, because those are not grouped under the guidelines or assaults are not grouped under the guide. It wouldn't be any problem if they were all
6: tried in the same, in the same proceeding. You wouldn't say these – you wouldn't have any, any objection. That is correct. That is correct. So I there, – there's nothing that seems so obvious to me about the injustice of doing it one way or another when you say that all that injustice can simply be eliminated by trying them all in one proceeding. The double punishment doesn't seem to me such a horrible thing. You're just saying – Really, it isn't the double punishment that's the problem. It's, it's not bringing them all in one proceeding that's the problem.
1: Well, It's not bringing them all in one proceeding because he's forced to be put in jeopardy again for the same guideline range and additional punishment. I'm not worried about the jeopardy. You're, you're complaining about the punishment.
6: That's correct. And you say hey, that's perfectly okay so long as they all did it in one proceeding. I, I find it hard to, you know, get, but, get righteously indignant about that injustice.
7: But do you agree? I just want to be clear on one thing. Just, do you agree that in a single proceeding he could have... Received as much punishment as he might now receive?
1: Yes. The way it would have worked is if the government brought four charges, you know, conspiring to import, importing, conspiring to possess, and intent to distribute and attempting to possess, if they brought four charges, the guideline range still would have been 262 to 395 months. The judge would have imposed a sentence, whatever it is. Then that sentence would have run concurrent. Each each of the four sentences would have run concurrent with each other.
3: Then that's a different answer than the one I thought you gave. I asked you, I gave you three situations, now I'll just give you two. Okay. One trial, two charges. Guilty of both, sentence. One trial, one charge plus relevant conduct. Second trial, one charge. Is the total exposure, assuming the sentences are going to run concurrently and that you get credit in the second case for the time that you served earlier, is there any difference in the time that this person can be made to serve between consecutive trials—one on the two charges or one trial on both charges?
1: Theory. If I understand the hypothetical correctly, the danger of having the second prosecution and trial is that a second trial judge gets to impose a sentence anywhere within the guideline range.
3: Is the range any different? The
1: range the range is not different.
3: So the exposure is the same whether it's one trial on two charges or consecutive trials each on one of the charges?
1: The exposure under the range is the same, yes. But the way the Fifth Circuit calculated it, you only get credit for time that you've served. So if the same sentence is imposed, you
5: Isn't the answer... I mean, the, the answer is it's supposed to work out the same. It's supposed to. But because of the way in which two consecutive trials can come about... Unusual circumstances can arise where the literal wording of the the guideline can't do it because, for example, one might have been a state trial and the other a federal trial. Or the the, the second trial might have taken place while the man isn't in custody anymore. So you can have unusual circumstances, not all of which could be foreseen. And so, therefore, there's a general instruction to the judge or to the bar and so forth. Try to make it work in accordance using your departure power so it works in unusual circumstances. I mean, the guidelines are filled with statements like that. And, and that's, that, that's why uh, I, I find this more of a guidelines problem than a jeopardy problem. And, and your case is not a case, I wouldn't think, where there's unfairness necessarily one way or the other. There's some reason here that the government's decided to prosecute this case again. And I'm sure that that reason is going to be presented to the judge. But, I mean, doesn't it all work out in the guidelines roughly? And I guess... You can't, You haven't shown me there could be some serious problem the serious application if you apply them intelligently.
1: Well, the Fifth Circuit has already told us, if you apply them as they see it, Mr. Whitty is facing an additional, at a minimum, an additional 118 months. And that is a serious
3: problem. Uh, there... That's only because of the departure, for, because of cooperation in the first case. That's correct. There was no cooperation as to the second charge.
1: That's right. There, were, as, there is nothing to show, there's nothing in the record, nothing that I know that will show that there will be any departure in the second case. So what happens is the, the first judge, who viewed all offenses as grouped under the guidelines— looked at Mr. Whitty's cooperation, exercised the discretion that was granted to him under the guidelines with a motion to depart downward, decided what the case was worth. Now the government lops off one of those offenses, goes back indicts it, and we get back to the group defenses, and it will completely nullify the judge's discretion in the first case. It will take away the motion for departure downward. The THE CONSEQUENCES OF THE GOVERNMENT'S CASE ARE THAT IT DOES AWAY WITH THE uh, COMMISSION'S ATTEMPT TO LIMIT THE SIGNIFICANCE OF THE CHARGING DECISION. IT DOES AWAY WITH THE GROUPING OF ALL OFFENSES. IT DEFEATS THE CONGRESSIONAL GOALS OF UNIFORMITY. IT DEFEATS THE JUDGE'S DISCRETION TO DEPART DOWNWARD. FOR THE GUIDELINES TO WORK AND TO BE CONSISTENT, BOTH PARTIES HAVE TO BE BOUND BY THEM. WELL NOW, MR. STOCKLE. Earlier I thought you
0: said your, your claim here was a double jeopardy claim, that given the way that the guidelines operated, the necessary sentence that would be imposed after the forthcoming trial would be a violation of double jeopardy. But now you seem to be arguing that uh, if, if you interpret the guidelines properly, uh, you, that would satisfy your client's interest. Is, is that right?
1: No, I think what I'm arguing is that the, the guy, that the double jeopardy clause will be violated if he is again sentenced under the guidelines, but that in addition, it also is contrary to the goals that Congress sought in the Sentencing Reform Act and that the goals that the Commission sought in, uh, writing the guidelines. It's, it's not that they're both the same, it's just that number one, the double, double jeopardy clause will be violated, and number two, by the way, the purposes of Congress will be defeated.
0: Well, ordinarily we would take those up in reverse order. Uh, that is, we wouldn't reach a constitutional question if there were some statutory question to be answered first.
1: Well, if if the court decides, of course, that uh, it would violate the intent of Congress under the Sentencing Reform Act, and it would violate. Uh, the intent of the commission and the express language of the guidelines to to prosecute to punish him again, then the court you 're correct the court need not reach the uh, double jeopardy decision
0: Well, I simply wanted to inquire about what you were urging upon the court i wasn 't trying to give you any ideas of my own
1: no. <laughs> I believe, I believe it is a double jeopardy decision the The problem here is Congress and the commission didn 't need to promulgate or there was no necessity to promulgate guidelines, but having promulgated those rules for use, and Mr. Woody, having been punished under those rules, putting him punishing him again under those rules violates a double jeopardy clause. mr. Chief Justice uh, with your permission, I would like to reserve the rest of my time.
0: Very well, Mr. Sokol. Mr. Dumont, we'll hear from you.
8: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. Uh, this Court cases have always permitted consideration at sentencing of conduct that is not part of the offensive conviction, uh, whether or not that conduct has led to other convictions, precisely because the sentence imposed in any given proceeding constitutes punishment only for the offense that is actually before the court in that proceeding.
4: WILL Will you tell us, in response to the question Justice O'Connor asked to the petitioner's counsel, if, in your view, uh, there is uh, no prematurity here, that we have the issue squarely before us? And subsidiary to that, uh, why are you prosecuting this person a second time if you don't intend to enhance his punishment?
8: In response to the first question, we think that, uh, although there is some slight doubt on it, we think the issues are uh, squarely presented. Um, The only doubt would arise if you could not reach the double jeopardy question until the sentencing stage of the second trial. That would depend on a determination that um, conviction could be had in the second proceeding without, as long as there was no sentence, there would be no double jeopardy problem. That seems somewhat inconsistent with the court's uh, decision in a ball against the United States, and also there's another case called Woodward, I believe, where the court took notice of the $50 special assessments that are required under federal law, and so that those were enough to, pre- to prevent two sentences from being completely concurrent.
4: Yes, the sense I have is that, is that the whole purpose of prosecuting him is, is so that you can impose some additional punishment. Now, maybe that's, and that leads to the second question I asked. Well, I, or is that correct?
8: I think there are a variety of interesting and difficult questions raised by. The notion of what the proper sentence would be at the second proceeding. I don't think it's necessary. It is not why we prosecuted the the crimes separately. Well, what if at the second
2: proceeding, uh, if the conviction were obtained, and if the sentence imposed were identical to the one previously imposed, credit given for time served, run concurrently, could there be a double jeopardy violation? If that were the case,
8: and it's no special assessments? Right. Uh, that's an interesting and difficult question that has not been reached. Our position would and be And I just
2: wonder if we aren't jumping the gun a little bit here to assume it's going to be different.
8: I think my position on behalf of the government ought to be that it is not necessarily punishment um, for uh, the second offense to be convicted for. It. But I think, mm-hmm. in all candidness, that would be a very difficult position to maintain if mm-hmm. we were forced to maintain it. So, well, and ha-
2: have you explained yet what the government's purpose might be in having a second prosecution? Might it be to encourage, if you will, the defendant to cooperate in connection with the second offense?
8: Well, I, if I can. Guess Is that a really- possibility? I suppose there are many possibilities. It's not what happened here. Or a
2: three-times-you're-out sort of a statute. The government might want another prosecution and conviction for purpose of a three-time-loser statute. I I, I mean, I'm just trying to figure out why the government wants to do this.
8: I think, in general, we might be entitled to the benefits of a three-time-loser statute, even if we brought one prosecution. But uh, what happened here is that we had two different— what the government viewed and still views as two very different offenses. They involved different people. Mr. Whitty was a common conspirator in the two. That's about the only thing the two had in common. Now, we had in jail at the time Mr. Whitty and his co-defendant in the first case. We chose to go ahead and prosecute that case, which seems to me the right answer when we have people in jail. Uh, we did not prosecute the cocaine conspiracy because his co-conspirator was at large for most of this period, and the investigation was not yet completed. Once we picked up the co-conspirator, we promptly charged the second conspiracy, the cocaine conspiracy, and proceeded to try that.
3: And I didn't understand your answer to Justice O'Connor's question. If the fir- in the first trial the cocaine is simply relevant conduct, how could it count as two strikes? Wouldn't you have to bring the second prosecution to make it a second strike?
8: Oh, certainly. If it's only in the first prosecution as relevant conduct. I understood the question to be – then I misunderstood the question. I'm sorry. Uh, If if we had brought several charges, several counts in the first indictment, it seems to me we might very well be able to uh, impose a recidivist uh, enhancement on the fourth one of conviction. But – But if it's just kind of as relevant conduct, then there's certainly no question of that. We would have to bring a second prosecution. And that really gets to the point, which is that under all of these courts' cases, there's always been quite a clear distinction between a conviction for an offense and a sentence imposed after that conviction. And before you, other before we get into that, be, could I
7: ask you one question about your explanation of why the second prosecution was appropriate? You said this, the co-conspirator had not been apprehended, so you couldn't proceed against the co-conspirator. But I don't understand why that made it necessary to proceed a second time against this defendant, because you could have proceeded against him without indicting this person again.
8: I think it might have been possible to proceed in this trial. It would have complicated the marijuana trial quite considerably, and it would have required us to put on all the cocaine evidence in two trials, uh, both first at Mr. Whitty's no, trial I'm assuming
7: this case went just as it did. Am I correct? Let me make sure I, this is kind of complicated. I mean, am, I, am I correct in assuming that all of the relevant conduct, put it, put it the other way around, that all of the, the cocaine activity that is alleged in the second indictment was taken into account as relevant conduct in the first trial?
8: And somewhat more, yes.
7: And then, then tell me again, why is it you, you need the second trial against this particular defendant if it's not to get additional punishment?
8: First of all, the investigation had not been completed, so it was not at the time a foregone conclusion that there would not have been additional uh, no, conduct discovered. By, by the, the time you experience. brought the
7: second trial, it was. Correct. And now, at the, why did you have to bring the second trial against this defendant if it was not for the purpose of getting more punishment?
8: You mean having had the judge already impose the sentence that he did? Yes. Uh, the government is entitled, and always has been entitled, to bring those two prosecutions as a prosecutorial discretion. Uh, oh, that, that makes sense. It did, but because
7: it, uh, it wants to get additional
8: punishment. Because the government was going to prosecute the other co-conspirator in any event, uh, we were entitled to seek a conviction against Mr. Whitty on the same. I'm evidence. not
7: arguing about what you're entitled to do. I'm just asking about: Is there any reason for doing it other than to get additional punishment?
8: I believe the government felt that we were entitled to get the conviction on the record as a conviction.
7: Oh, the reason is simply to get, get another conviction on his record.
8: I believe that was a, a reason and a legitimate reason for, and a sufficient reason for bringing the second prosecution. Sort of like a declaratory judgment proceeding. Well, as I said, you know, the, the issues of what punishment will be imposed at the second trial are not ripe here and, and involve a lot of things, including what version of the guidelines will be applied. I, I
4: thought the government so, was busy, that it, that it had a heavy criminal caseload.
8: We do. And I think if you read the uh, transcript of the dismissal hearing and the second charge, you will find the judge was very concerned about that. But I don't think it has ever been uh, considered to take away our right to bring a second charge on a different offense, uh, no matter what punishment may or may not, no matter whether that conduct may or may not have been taken into account in a prior separate offense prosecution at sentencing.
7: But the difference in this case from the Williams and the other cases is that the conduct may have been taken into, or in fact was taken into. But under the guideline system, the trial judge at the first trial was required by law to take into account the relevant conduct. Doesn't that make a
8: difference? I guess you said no. 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 Um, (laughs) First of all, of course, we— Why not? (laughs) Assuming that he was required, because assuming that it was relevant conduct, which, of course, we didn't uh, believe at the time and don't believe now, um, the Court has made quite clear that what what counts as— uh, mandatory for sentencing purposes is the statutory maximum and minimum uh, prescribed by Congress for the offense, which, in the case of his marijuana conduct, was five to forty years. Now, it turns out that however you applied the guidelines or whatever conduct you took into account, that's a broad enough range, so there was no question. Uh, but that's the relevant uh, mandatory maximum minimum. It's the one pre- prescribed by Congress. Uh, the fact that Congress, in the sentencing guidelines, chose to guide and channel the district court's discretion in imposing a sentence within that range uh, is completely irrelevant to whether it was a sentencing factor or a conviction factor, as the court made very clear in McMillan. And really, there's no distinction between uh, the kind of issue that was uh, posed in McMillan and that issue here. Uh, I'd like to point out that, you know, petitioner's theory being that consideration at the sentencing phase uh, of his prior prosecution of this particular conduct um, amounts to punishment for that conduct has one very dramatic consequence, which is that every recidivist statute uh, in every jurisdiction in this country is unconstitutional, because every one of those statutes involves considering at sentencing for one offense, conduct that has previously been considered uh No, at the but none of those statutes require person.
7: consideration at the first trial of the conduct at for for which he's indicted in the second trial. None of them require that. Whereas this statute does require that the cocaine conduct be considered at the marijuana trial. If it's known.
8: If it's known. That
7: distinguishes all of the recidiv- recidivist statutes that you refer to.
8: Well, with respect, I don't think so, because in both cases, what we are talking about is consideration at sentencing on a preponderant standard of certain uncharged conduct, conduct that was not required to be proven to the court that's doing the sentencing beyond a reasonable doubt after an indictment. No, but it was
7: required to be proved. And it was proven and was relied on just as if it had been proved beyond a reasonable doubt.
8: That's right. But if it is punishment in violation of the double jeopardy clause to consider at sentencing conduct that has previously been proved, then it is a violation of the double Jeopardy Clause to enhance someone's sentence at a subsequent prosecution on the basis of criminal conduct that was previously proved to another jury and another judge. Your point is
6: it doesn't matter whether it was required to be previously proved or was previously proved and considered as a discretionary matter. The fact that it has been done
8: previously makes the later one a second one, whether it was done discretionarily or not. That's absolutely right. and In our view, it cannot possibly make a difference. That has always been yeah, no, part of the fabric of sentencing law. But what the
5: problem, I think, was... I mean, I don't want to put words in other people's mouths, but I thought that Justice Stevens was driving at the different problem of a a later prosecution. And what you are prosecuting this person for is the thing for which he was punished previously required by law. That's not the recidivism statute at all. In a recidivism statute, you're punishing the person for what he did later. And the amount of the punishment is a function of what happened before. But in this case, what you're doing later is you are convicting him of a activity for which he was previously punished. You're not increasing punishment because of what he previously did for a different thing. You are convicting him of what he has previously been punished for. And, that, and, and since these matters are matters of, criminal, uh, of, of, of congressional intent, uh, th- there is an open question, I suppose, about whether the Congress, in passing these sentencing guidelines, has, in fact, manifested some kind of relevant intent. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm simply saying it's, it's not so obvious a, a question as, as the recidivism quotation would suggest.
8: Well, let me make two responses, if I may. The first is that there is a, if I, if I may, a crucial flaw in the way you pose the problem, which is to say that he it is conduct for which he has previously been punished. That is not true. It is conduct that has been taken into account in punishing him previously for yes. a different offense. And that has never been considered to be a problem under That's the Dr. Right. Clause know. or the Clause point. or anything else. Now, the second point you make is an excellent one, and you made it before, which is there are really two possible arguments that Petitioner can be making here, and he conflates them, but I think it's necessary to separate them out. One is an argument based on the Constitution, that what we are doing violates double jeopardy per se, and that, we think, is wrong for all the reasons that we've been discussing, that all these courts' cases are to the contrary on both sentencing and due process. Now, there's also a statutory argument, I suppose, that could be made, that the Congress intended, when it passed the Guidelines on the Sentencing Reform Act, to so transform the sentencing system that it would, in effect, forbid, as a matter of statutory law, subsequent prosecutions, successive prosecutions of this type. Now, we think that that uh, cannot hold up, Uh, first of all, because there is no positive indication anywhere in the language or the uh, history of the Sentencing Reform Act or the guidelines to suggest that that's what Congress had in mind. And second, because the guidelines themselves in Section 5G 1.3 have an explicit mechanism which is designed to take care of exactly this kind of situation, where you have successive prosecutions for the same kind of conduct, in fact, the same exact conduct. Now, it is implausible that Congress addressed that and the Senate Commission addressed that issue specifically in 5G 1.3 if they thought that it was unconstitutional anyway, given what they had done to the definition of offenses. To return for a moment to uh, the issue of uh, what you are punished for when you, when you are punished, even no matter what is being taken into account. I'd like to just point out one example. The amount of marijuana involved in the first prosecution here happened to be 370 pounds, and that put, uh, Mr. Witte in the statutory sentencing category of 5 to 40 years, a very broad category which, as I mentioned, accommodated any of the possible changes in, in, uh, the guidelines range depending on the relevant conduct. But suppose that it had been 50 kilograms of marijuana then his statutory maximum sentence under Section 841, uh, leaving aside unlikely other events, would have been five years. Now, suppose that the guidelines range, uh, as it would have been, um, would have been 33 to 41 months in the middle of that five-year range. And suppose the District Court had taken account of the other 232,000 kilograms of marijuana equivalent that it took account of in this case as relevant conduct. It would have wanted it would have uh, been required to enhance his sentence but it would have hit a statutory maximum of five years and it would have been able to impose no sentence greater than five years because that's the statutory maximum for the of conviction yeah, but that's not this case so you don't have a statutory maximum it's not supposing
7: the supposing just the opposite supposing that that would have required a 20-year sentence say there was no statutory maximum and then but they only indicted him for the lesser amount and you're saying they could impose that sentence, and then subsequently indict him for the larger amount, and then impose an additional sentence.
8: That's your position, is it not? As a constitutional matter, if the two offenses are separate, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Now, as a guidelines matter, it's no unlikely that
7: that... Do, do you have a precedent for that ever having been done by any court, where the, at the first trial there was, a, uh, there was a requirement by statute or rule or whatever it might be that certain relevant conduct aggravate the sentence? and it was imposed, and then subsequently the person was indicted and convicted of the aggra- uh, aggravating offense.
8: I have no case where there was a statute that required it as a matter of guidelines. Now, I think the court said in uh, both Williams Oklahoma well, and Oklahoma and Williams State or, they, that the court has an obligation to consider all conduct that comes before in and the it. Williams a case, obligation in this case, when he was indicted
7: for kidnapping, that the prior proceeding for murder, there, there's no indication that the kidnapping aggravated his, his offense. It couldn't have been because he, he got a lesser sentence that time.
8: Well he got a he was sentenced to, to life for murder and then to uh, and for kidnapping and he got death. That's right. Explicitly on the basis of having committed the murder.
7: That's right. But at the murder trial, the point is at the murder trial, there was no reliance on the kidnapping as relevant conduct that would aggravate the offense. And that's what you got here. Well then that's in fact, all of your cases. I don't think you can cite a single case where the relevant conduct at the first indictment was re- aggravated the sentence, and then was the subject matter of a second indictment. Or can you? Maybe you can give me a case like this.
8: Well. Uh not that I can think of. Yeah, but there should head. be. There should but, be you know are... I, I could also say there's no case holding to the contrary. There's no case holding. And, you know, certainly Williams versus New York is to the contrary, where the court took into account uncharged conduct uh, in imposing a death penalty. And there's no suggestion that if the government had wanted to and hadn't thought it wasted a waste of resources, it couldn't have gone and prosecuted him for those burglaries later.
7: No, but it seems somewhat counterintuitive to me to say that a man can be punished for relevant conduct in proceeding A, Yet have that aggravate offense, a sentence that would not otherwise have been imposed, then say, in proceeding B, we can go ahead and punish him again for the same relevant conduct. And and all I'm suggesting is your position is without any precedent.
8: Well, I would say that my position is, I I think, with a great deal of precedent, although I can't cite you a specific case where, as you say, the judge was required in the first uh, uh, case to... Uh, take account of the same conduct, although I suspect there are such cases. I can't think of one off the top of my head that should not be taken as an indication that they don't exist. Now, what I think the logic of your argument and petitioner's argument has to be is that it makes a difference whether the court in the first case is required by Congress to take into account certain, thi- certain things as sentencing factors or whether it is not required to take them into account but is allowed to do so as a matter of discretion. And we think that as a constitutional matter, it cannot make a difference whether the court takes account of uncharged conduct as a purely discretionary matter within the statutory range, as a prescribed matter under the guidelines, as criminal history, and who who knows what they might do, uh, how they they might take account of it. If Would you take the same position in
7: the first trial that the guidelines or some procedure require proof beyond a reasonable doubt before they could take into account relevant conduct? Would you still take the same position?
8: Uh, I don't see why we wouldn't. I I wouldn't think you would either, right. That's that's entirely a matter of — it goes to the fact that the Court has always said that it is Congress or the legislature in any given case that is entitled to choose what is an element of the offense and what is a sentencing factor. Now, the Court has recognized that there are cases where that might potentially be manipulated. And Macmillan, I think, stands for this proposition, that the Court will take cognizance that the legislature might try to manipulate that and flip something that should really be an uh, an offense element into the sentencing phase. But until the legislature does that, and there's no case that's ever held that the legislature has done that, until they do that, what the legislature decides is a, an offense element and a sentencing factor controls. And if it's a sentencing factor, it need only be proved by a preponderance, although, of course, Congress could prescribe something greater. And it does not go to uh, the question of whether you've been, you've been punished for that conduct. You've only had that conduct taken into account in enhancing your punishment for something else of which you had been duly convicted. You, you probably agree with this, but so don't let me go down
5: the wrong track, though, if it's not. I mean, I, I think it's quite a difficult question and rather deep. The, why, why isn't there this precedent? And it, it, there should, it should turn out there is such because lots of states have guideline systems now. And uh, you should find uh, the state might try to prosecute somebody for a thing where there has been, you know, this kind of situation federally or the other way around. And the difficulty, I think, is that they don't always call the crimes by the same name. You have a civil rights conviction and an assault conviction, you see, in two different jurisdictions. And, and what's worrying me is if, is if you suddenly bring the Constitution into this, I, I, I don't see how the Constitution is going to get it. Uh, when has there been a prior case? Because the, the underlying things are described in terms of behaviors. They're not described in terms of crimes. I mean, I'm, I'm saying this because maybe it
8: will jog your recollection that you have found such similar things. Or, Unfortunately, it doesn't jog my recollection on, right. on the point of having found another case. It does bring up an, an excellent point, and I, I do agree with it entirely. I agree with that because it's <laughs> favorable to you, but... uh, I, I, I agree with it entirely, and I think it points up that The relevant conduct provisions of the guidelines talk, as you say, in terms of conduct, not in terms of offenses. And petitioners' argument requires courts, would require courts, to go through an analysis where you – take that conduct and try to figure out what offense it constituted and then compare it under the Blockburger test to the elements of offense of a new prosecution. Now, I'm not saying that that would be impossible, but it is difficult. And but, have to do where it. but you only
7: have to do it when the government sought to
8: indict somebody for the same
7: conduct which had already enhanced punishment. I mean, that doesn't happen very often. I mean, this is a very unusual case, I think. Or maybe it isn't. I don't know. It seems to me it's somewhat unusual. I think it's unusual.
2: But the guidelines do seem to expressly provide that uh, if the offense has been fully taken into account in the determination of the sentence already given, that the new sentence will run concurrently.
8: That's absolutely right. I mean, the,
2: the guidelines seem to contemplate this very occurrence on occasion.
8: That's absolutely right. And,
2: and accommodate it by requiring a concurrent sentence.
8: That's quite right. And I would point out again uh, that the... As, as petitioners have pointed out, the Sentencing Commission has not been notably satisfied with the way that 5G 1.3 works. It's been amended several times. There are some extensive amendments that have been proposed for public comment right now. Um, I think that what, part of what that indicates is that there are a lot of vexing problems. About how you decide whether prior conduct has really been taken into account and whether it's comparable to the current offensive conviction and how exactly one ought to accommodate all of that. It
7: doesn't doesn't boil down to the fact that the sentence have to run concurrently that, and the judge, the government thinks the first judge was too lenient and too much of a downward departure or something. It gets a second bite at the apple. So well let's, maybe the second judge, even though it'll run concurrently, will give a longer sentence the second time. That's what it gives the government the opportunity to do, it seems to me, is to get the maximum sentence for the relevant conduct.
8: It gives, the opportunity, it gives the government the opportunity to do what the government has always had the opportunity to do, which is to charge and convict for separate offenses in separate trials at separate times. It's always and had the opportunity, judges,
7: but you haven't been able to find a case where they've ever done it and,
8: before. And allow the judge in each case to uh, impose the sentence that he or she thinks fit within the statutory maximum and minimum for the offense of conviction at every trial. The court has nothing further. Hmm.
0: Thank you, Mr. Dumont. Uh, Mr. Stockwell, you have five minutes remaining.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Let me point out first that the government uh, says that it has always had the opportunity to bring separate charges and obtain different punishments. The Sentencing Reform Act and the Federal Sentencing Guidelines changed that system because of the disproportionate sentences that came about. It changed that system because Congress wanted uniformity and honesty in sentencing. The fact that the government cannot now bring subsequent prosecutions to try to get different sentences is something that Congress wanted to bring about. Now, let me say a few words about the record in this case. The record in this case shows that, number one, the government filed a criminal complaint alleging all acts and all offenses at the outset of the case. So there's, there's no
0: reason- We're talking about now that the first prosecution-
1: The first prosecution started out with a criminal, ca- criminal complaint, and the affidavit alleged all of the facts and transactions in both the cocaine offenses and the marijuana offenses. The government didn't file it under seal. It didn't try to keep it secret. The government, in the motion to dismiss hearing in this case, when questioned by the judge about a castigar problem, said, oh, no, judge, we had all the evidence before Mr. Woody pleaded guilty in the first case. So they had all the evidence to prosecute him. They could have filed an indictment then and could have gotten their conviction. If there was a problem finding Mr. picorni they had plenty of tools in their arsenal. They can get a, a continuance under the Speedy Trial Act to try to apprehend fugitives. They can try the cases separately and merge them for sentencing. The government is not precluded by getting another conviction at at the same time when it alleged all those facts at the outset of the first prosecution. Finally, I'd like to point out the government cannot cite a reason for pursuing this prosecution that puts Mr. Whitty, according to the Fifth Circuit's opinion, in jeopardy for an additional 118 months. I think the Court can only infer that the reason it's going after this is to get a second bite in an apple, to get additional punishment, which is exactly what the double jeopardy clause prohibits. Your Honors, we request that you reverse the decision of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and remand for dismissal of the indictment in this case. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice.
0: Thank you, Mr. Sokol. The case is submitted.